Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hey, everybody. It's Out of Darkness Central Light. I'm here with Connie and Dan, uh, who has a long Polish name. Yeah. With an O. Is that a Polish name, Dan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. And uh, we had another guy on uh, called Matthew Shodnacki or something like that. And, uh, he oh, a, you just butchered that one. <laughs> <laughs> Polish name I didn't try to pronounce either. Well, this I'm time I tried to pronounce him, what's it. What's his I said, name? Pronounce it. He never pronounces it for me. Like, oh, I never even tried last you. time. But who else is going to be in here? No, I think there's two. One says guest. I think that's me because I'm just opening the chat. I'm on a on a phone on the California one, and the guest for is just me in the chat. Oh, okay. I oh well, there you go. I just <laughs> said hello to you. I um I invited Brian Palmer in here too from Facebook. So he's been in a, uh, one or two. I think he's been mostly in the chat room. I don't think he's ever been on our actual calls. But he's been in the chat before with us. Um, there's fireworks going off over here, by the way, because it's midnight here on the East Coast. So, yeah. Uh, in case you guys hear something crazy. Yeah, you might hear some over here too. Yeah, we got them going off right now on the on the West Coast. Oh wow. So, what is it like uh, to live in Honduras, Dan? <clears throat> um, it's pretty cool. Not a lot of the... Sound like uh, a, a decent place to live uh, if the economy goes down in America. You never know what's going to happen there, you know. But. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have to... I mean, it's definitely a big adjustment, you know. Different culture and obviously different language and stuff. And me, when I came here, I was already, like, going through the process of maybe, like... I was probably, like, heavy into truth-seeking for about a year and a half, two years already. And I was already, like, trying to detach from everything and all that. So when I came here on vacation, like, it was just kind of like God opening it. It wasn't planned or anything, but it just kind of, it was the next step in my progress of what I needed to do. Uh-huh. But um, it all kind of, I mean, like, I guess there would be a lot of variables. Like, if you have some money set aside, if you want to live in a city, more environment. I'm, like, out in a village that's kind of, like, out more rural like out in the sticks by i'm on the ocean and got mountains in the back so it's kind of like uh it's what i like about it you know very different water and mountains you know yeah and actually we have puget sound which is a unique area on the face of the whole earth um there really isn't anywhere else like it you know it's a huge inlet uh, of where uh uh northwest washington uh-huh. British Columbia, and then it separates us from the Olympic Peninsula. And on the Olympic Peninsula, you have a major mountain range. It's called the Olympics, and then 
we have the Cascade Mountains behind us, which extends from British Columbia to um, Oregon. So we've got two mountain ranges on each side of all this water. It's absolutely beautiful up here. Then we've got islands. We've got the San Juan Islands uh, between Washington and uh, British Columbia. They're actually part of Washington State. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place to live up here. So, so yeah, but it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. If, as long as that's what you're looking for, something different, you know. Uh-huh. And, um the people are pretty cool, like especially living where I live is an actual like a a village, a community, so everybody knows everybody. You see the same faces on a daily basis. And uh, the first year or so when I was living here, going back and forth, it was like it was hard going back and forth between here and the states because it was so different. You know, you're used to this here. Everybody greets you in the streets. You say hi to everybody. You see the same people all the time. And you go back to the states. Everybody's cold. You know, just walking past each other and. Yeah, right. even though I've never been to that area, I mean, I think I've mentioned, like, just Costa Rica. You know, I haven't been there. But what I talk about is that, um, you know, you have, you know, like, young kids down there, because I've heard about this kind of thing, young kids, like, playing in the dirt or something like that. And, uh, you know, but they're happy and they're smiling a lot. And um, and you look at... Uh, you know, kids in America, or just doesn't have to be any age bracket, you know. And people are just generally happier down there, even though they have a lot less. Right. So it's telling you something about our society and this mad pursuit of material things, which break down really fast. <laughs> right. And not only that, even, like, the trust factor, I mean, the kids are all out in the streets. I mean, you know, the kids go out in the right. street, they might wind up going, you know, to the other side of freaking the town or down several blocks down the road and everybody kind of knows everybody. So it's not really too big of a thing. That was one of the first things that I realized when I come down here is like, I was so programmed in my mind with all these fear things. Even when, before I lived here, I was helping out at this orphanage and it was like all these little boys. It really changed my life because I was seeking God to reveal some stuff to me about his love. And I wound up being in this position at an orphanage working with these boys. And they was like, on the very first day, just jumping all over me and just hugging me and loving me. And it was like right when To Catch a Predator was really big, when it was pushing it real, like several times a week, you know, and really like getting everybody's mind fear-based on. on. And I realized I'm like, I, I was struggling a lot with these thoughts when I went down there, like what are people going to think about me? Like these kids are jumping all over me, you know? And I was realizing, I'm like, dude, this is weird that I have, these kind of thoughts, like, I don't want people to perceive me wrong, that I'm being too close to these kids when these kids are, are trying to love me and show me love and looking for me to love them back. And that should be the natural thing. And then we're programmed with all of these fear-based ideas to keep us separated and all that stuff. So it's like realizing, man, America is just so screwed up. <laughs> well, just today I was talking to my roommate, about how people... Oh, it was you on the podcast, on the on the phone. I remember I was talking to you. It wasn't my roommate. It was you on the phone. I was talking about how we have this fear of, you know, cult leaders and cults. Right, yeah. People didn't have that back in the 1950s, so you have to ask yourself, where did that come from? Well, it came from the media, all this fear monger. Right. And, you know, when people, like a neighbor moves in next door, you don't trust these people because you hear, we've lost faith in humanity. So we have evil suspicions about people now and trust issues. And 
I got a high turnover rate here. I'm kind of like an old low-income housing. It's called transitional housing, but <clears throat> the place is actually nice. It's just the people here come. A lot of them come from the penitentiary, believe it or not. That's why it's low income, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, but I mean, people have really big trust issues. You know, I go out of my way to try to um, circumvent that, get things moving. You know, because uh, it's like really exaggerated here, man. <clears throat> Bad. I actually tell them you know, I'm not I'm not here to you know squeal on you or anything like that. I'm basically going to look the other way. I'm just not going to lie for you. If somebody asks me a point of question, you know, mm-hmm. they don't trust nobody. You can tell them right away. You there, Connie? Yeah, I'm here. Matthew said he can't. He's got uh he's at his fifth stop of the night. He's actually out with some. People right now, Exodus Select people, so he can't really call in. Something about he's gonna die again tonight. I'm like, really? I think that has to do something with this special boys club that he belongs to. So I'm asking him um, if he's getting another promotion. He said, "LOL, no. I'm going to the river to drown my old man again. I need a restart." Sounds like somebody needs Matthew to put all that. Code. <laughs> he can't understand it. <laughs> maybe he's getting a new bat. Maybe he's getting baptized again. <laughs> Sounds like it. So what he's up to. Um, I actually uh, interviewed him. Oh, it's kind of a semi interview. And uh, Dan, he was actually standing in a uh, Freemasonic temple, but he didn't tell me that. He was driving there, and then he he went inside the temple. <laughs> he kind of sprung that on me for dramatic purposes. <laughs> Is that Matthew, like, starts with a C-H or something? Yeah. Practical astrology, yeah. Uh-huh. So we got a podcast where I'm talking to a guy in a Freemasonic temple. <laughs> standing there in the dark. <laughs> that was a long podcast, too. <laughs> so is, um, who's, who's the other guy? Patrick, is he showing up? I didn't see him online. Oh, okay. So. Dang it, man. It's cold out here. I'm outside. Oh, my gosh. It's like 20 degrees out here. Oh, uh, yeah. It's too cold to walk around out here. Jeez. I do a lot of podcasts uh, where I walk around, you know. All right. Now, I asked Brian Palmer if he wanted to come in, but he didn't say anything. He always does that. Uh-huh. It's like he'll talk. We need to talk. Okay, well let's talk. And he wants to go on Skype, and then that's it. And I'm like, no, we need to record these things. And well, you can record on Skype if you have a just some means to record any kind of streaming audio. They also have recorders for Skype. <laughs> so how long? How many years have you guys been recording podcasts and stuff? Uh, early 2012, I think. No, 2011. 2011? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was like the end of 2011, I think, yeah. Yeah, we've got a lot of them up. They're not all up in one place, so... And, like, before that, before that, how were you dispersing information? Well, um, the thing with me is I basically left society... Because I was told to do that, and I actually had people that were sent to me. So it was this big lifestyle change that I had to go through. 
And uh, so I was just sitting there, like, passively monitoring the Internet, and I would occasionally seek the Lord, like I was telling you earlier, if I could get involved with, you know, just like an online forum or something like that. I mean, that seems innocent enough. You're kind of going, why you even bother to ask about something like that? Because I could tell that I was on tight restrictions. And, um, you know, people go, why would God do something like that? Well, I was developing this huge theological system, okay? Now, when you do something like that, it doesn't drop into your lap the next day. It takes a lot of time to develop. So over the years, I began to see the wisdom of God because, you know, I wanted to do things like write books and stuff like that. Uh, It's not like I couldn't have done it, but um, if I had done it on, like, theology or something like that with any real depth to it, especially if I did it more in a general sense, I would have um I would have had a lot of error in there. And I probably would have been embarrassed because I've gone through a lot of development. I mean, I, I'm mm-hmm. changing all the time and see in Christianity we're not comfortable with that. Right. Because we whether we realize this or not, we really do use pastors as kind of like a a measuring stick. And whether we really realize it or not, I mean, they're kind of like the experts. You know. I mean, who else is the experts? Most Christians ignore the academic community. So what do you have left below the academic community? Well, you have pastors, you know. Like I've said on here a number of times, in the ancient world, they would not be qualified to even function as an authoritative teacher over a sizable group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. Unless they're older in years. Because you, you had to be an elder, you see. So we've got this system that we plug into, and, and it's all we know. We don't know anything else. You don't see anything else. You know, you go to school for four years, you go to school for eight years, and uh, they tell you that you're an expert, and you got and you got to go out and make some money because you got to pay off these loans. I mean, that right, <laughs> yeah, right, that right there. You see, <clears throat> you're going into debt immediately, and this is just the norm. I mean, everybody does it, so we just do it. And, I mean, people are in a near lifetime of debt, you know. And this is supposed to all be approved by God somehow. You know what I mean? We don't question it. And then, you know, you get out of like a four-year Bible school or seminary or whatever the heck. You may have acquired a wife and a child along the way. And you've got to make some money. And so, you know, I mean, how? let's say you're 23 years old. Are you ready to become a pastor of a local church? Well, no. Okay. Um, so what they do, they create a uh, a, uh, a pastoral office for just for you. It's called a, a youth pastor. So you know, so you can make some money. Mm-hmm. And you know, you ask people, well, well, what is your belief based upon? They always say the same thing. It's based upon the Bible. So. You go into the Bible and you try to find these things, and uh, they're nowhere there. There's no youth pastor. There's no Sunday school. <laughs> there's no pastors either. I've said on here a number of times that the word pastor doesn't matter what translation you have. It's not in the uh, <clears throat> the apostolic scriptures. It's only in the plural. You see, it's a general term, and elsewhere it's translated as shepherds, plural, question is, why is it translated shepherds one time and pastors another? Because it should be 
You know, Paul is addressing the elders. That's who he's writing to. He's not writing to pastors, mm-hmm. you see. Right, and one thing I picked up from learning Spanish by living down here, I start catching a lot of different linguistic things that you would never notice if you didn't speak the other languages, but the word shepherd in Spanish is pastor. It's pastor. Huh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's basically the King James uh, tradition. Now, it may go back before that, you know, with like the Bishop's Bible and Geneva Bible, I'm not sure. Which but, that says, you know, the one verse that says, the Lord is my shepherd, as the Lord is my pastor. Yeah, well, now that word um, is there in the Old Testament, too. You know, it's obviously Hebrew. But, you know, like in the Septuagint, where you have a Greek translation in the Old Testament. Uh-huh. If you're going to be consistent across the board, you say pastor all the time, which nobody does, then you'd have pastor in the Old Testament. But nobody yeah. does that. So it's translated inconsistently. But it's just a general term for a leader. Um, it, it's more of a general term than an elder. An elder is more specific, you know, like an elder or a deacon. But what I'm trying to say is that there should be a plurality of elders. That's that's what who Paul is writing to. He's not writing to one individual. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to say is that um, well, that system is not it's not found in the Bible anywhere. Now, if you have a little tiny house church and nobody's qualified because um, they just don't have any knowledge, because you should have an ability to teach, you know, something. Let's say that you're out in the sticks somewhere in Central America. Well, you're going to have to compromise, you know what I mean? <clears throat> but uh, if you've got one person that's qualified but nobody else is at all, then you could justify having, you know, one elder. Even though that, you know, strictly it's not the biblical model. <clears throat> but, you know, there's an example where, I mean, we don't do it the biblical way, and we don't really, we're not really concerned about it. I mean, you could point that out to people, and um, they're not concerned about it because there's so many people doing it this way, which is actually the wrong way, but it's like, you know, it must be okay. You know, so you ask yourself the question, is it okay with God? Or does God compromise? You know. Because I think a lot of us kind of think along those lines, although they, they won't go out and say, you know, God compromises, you know, because they know he don't, he doesn't, that doesn't sound right. But mm-hmm. they act as if he does. They act as if he does without actually voicing it, you know. In other words, God approves of this which is interesting because you ask yourself the question, does he approve of it? You know, when you do it the wrong way, especially if you're confronted with the truth and you just kind of go with the program because, well, I don't want to buck the system and um, God be, can't be that much against it because there's so many people doing it. You know what I mean? Something mm-hmm. like tithing or something like that. You know, I mean, obviously you have the um, the principle of giving. You know, but you see how people extract um, different things out of the law of Moses while ignoring others. You know, for instance, like, um, yeah, these people running around saying that, you know, if you don't prophesy perfectly, then you're a false prophet, and they can appeal to the book of Deuteronomy. You know the passage I'm talking about. Well, if they were to apply that consistently, then they should kill this prophet, because they're saying, this guy's a false prophet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Paul actually said, within the context of inspired apostles who function as prophets, he actually said, 
we prophesy in part. What <laughs> but we don't, don't have a full knowledge. You know what I mean? Now, that's a good example there where, see, the Bible doesn't comment on the Bible. So you're left mm -hmm. hanging. What does he mean by that? Because, see, it can mean more than one thing. So if we had the Apostle Paul here, he said, now, what did you mean when you wrote that? <laughs> did that? Did you mean that you could um, prophesy things that could be partially wrong because you're lacking in knowledge? Or did you just mean that we prophesy in part because we don't have the whole picture, but all our prophecies are true, but uh, they're lacking um, information? Because that concept is actually taught in the Bible, which shows that our concept of prophecy is um, there's something haywire with it. I'm trying to find this. Um, it says in First Peter 1, Verse 10 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out. Now, these are inspired prophets. They were trying to find out the time and circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ in them was, watch this, in them was pointing. The Holy Spirit was pointing, but they were still trying to figure it out. And then was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. See, what that's talking about is partial revelation. See that? A lot of Christians, they don't understand partial revelation. They think you either get it all or it's a false prophecy. See, it says the Holy Spirit was doing that, but they were still trying to figure it out. So they were inspired, but they didn't have complete knowledge. Now, you don't hear that very often, do you? It's just right in the Bible. So it's probably what uh, Paul was talking about. But um, I think allowance is made, especially in our day, because we were talking earlier today on how we're on a lower level than the apostles. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, don't, you don't go out and kill somebody because they make a mistake. See, here's the problem, if you just use common sense. <clears throat> uh, what is a prophecy? Good question. Who, you know, we don't have uh, an angel coming down from on high and, and uh, strumming his harp and saying, well, what you just said was a prophecy from God, okay? <laughs> That'd be nice, okay? We have to put a label on it. That means it's subject to human error. So how do you even know it's a prophecy? Now, if someone gets out there in a charismatic external fashion and acts like a prophet, then people will go, he's prophesying. You know what I mean? Well, that setting that kind of stuff aside, there's always a gray area where you're not actually sure. You're not sure if this is a revelation. You're not sure if it's a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, or a prophecy, because there's always a gray area. So who's the infallible person that can determine exactly what is um, a revelation and what isn't? You see, because um, man has to determine that. So that means that man is going to err. So you have a problem even determining revelation itself. So how can you judge it and say, this is revelation, you failed, so I'm going to kill you? Because you need to do that and be consistent. If you're going to hold somebody to a 
Old Testament standard, then you need to kill them. But see, nobody does that today. <laughs> but see, they're not, um, you know, that's, that's double, the double think, you know. Remember how we talked earlier about how people, Christians, are not thinking straight? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a good example right there. That's the subject of ecclesiology, which has to do with church practice. And it's amazing because um, <clears throat> not only is that the clearest branch of uh, theology, because there's many branches of theology, it, it, you kind of have to get a feel for it because um, the church practices, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, it's like they're more self-evident. Easy to, easier to figure them out. Well, you just kind of have to get a feel for it. But um, what's interesting about that subject, because we, we all assume that Christianity is the one true religion, like I talked about earlier. So you have orth, orthodoxy, which has to do with correct belief, and you have orthopraxy, which has to do with correct practice. Now stop and ask yourself this question. Can you have a true religion and have false practice? No, because practice is an essential part of any religion, just like belief. So, you know, you have beliefs, you have a personal deity, you have a worship, and uh, you have practice. So practice is an essential part of any religion. Then you look at Christianity, okay? Now, if you go from church to church, and you have a little knowledge about the first century church, um, you'll be hard-pressed to find that this would be like a conservative... Um, they call them Protestant churches. They're not really, but they, they think they are. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in popular Christianity in America today, you would be hard-pressed to find one or two correct apostolic practices. There's a lot of church practices. And it's not uncommon to find nothing. Now, this is absolutely shocking. But if this is true, it reveals the... Uh, Unbelievable ignorance that's out there. Now, things are not getting better. We're not, we're not restoring anything. We're moving farther away from a first century apostolic standard. And actually, the best way to illustrate this is not to point out all, all the false practices. It's try to find something that's correct. See if you can name something correct. For instance, in these older... Uh, you know, traditional denominations that are, quote-unquote, liberal. And they're not even Christian anymore. You know what I mean? Like the Episcopal Church, you know. You wonder why they even, what are you doing here on Sunday? <laughs> Come here to play cards or smoke cigars? or I mean, there's nothing going on. It's just like, you know, well, we've always come here. You know, my family's always been Episcopalian and... uh we didn't want to be the first ones to leave. Because that's the way it was in my family. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like not, I was an acolyte like twice every Sunday, man. It's like I was like like the only acolyte. I had to be there. You know? But uh, it's it's amazing because in some of these older um, traditional denominations, you know, we're talking like United Methodists, okay? <clears throat> they will actually have more correct uh, church practices than conservative Christian churches. This is astonishing. For instance, um, they will actually have a reading from the Scripture. Remember that Paul actually said that he wanted the public reading of Scripture? 
they'll actually do that. That's that's like the highlight of the whole thing as far as anything anything from biblical it's downhill from there, you know what I mean? <clears throat> uh you know, I mean there's things that are obvious, like, you know, Sunday school. I mentioned a youth pastor earlier. We talked uh-huh. about pastors. Uh-huh. The church building is not biblical. See, Christianity, popular Christianity, is centered around a church building, a pastor, and a sermon. None of these things are biblical. I talked about the the pastor. Can you think of anywhere in the Bible where God said to build a church building? He didn't even say build a synagogue, because the church building is based upon the synagogue model, right? Right. He never said to do that either. But see, that's okay. We're just going to do it anyway. Just do our... <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And we'll give it a stamp of approval. You know, God has this big stamp of approval. He's got this great big stamp, and he says, because I love you so much, I'm going to give it a stamp of approval. Now, it's interesting how much God has changed since the way he used to be. Because in the Old Testament, there had to be absolute precision with these sacrifices, or God didn't accept it. Do you see absolute precision in the modern church today? Because I see just um, you know slop-and-go mediocrity, assuming that God gives them a big stamp of approval. That's, that's what I see. Dave, you know, People go, Dave, you're being overly critical. Well, produce some evidence. So <clears throat> if you have consistent unbiblical practice across the board, how can you claim to be a true religion? Well, you can't, you see, because practice is an essential part of any religion. So the primary argument that none of this matters, that we're the true religion anyway, (laughs) is based on that reason in a circle. We're the true religion, therefore, God gives us a stamp of approval. You, you haven't listened to the podcast yet, but when I when I talk on here, I talk about some something that I don't hear anyone talking about. That it's all religions are corrupt. There is no true religion, mm-hmm. and Christianity is corrupt, just like Second Temple Judaism, which was also a false religion, and the apostles and Jesus wouldn't have approved of it either. But. Um, Christianity is totally separate, in some sense, from all other religions. This doesn't mean it's a true religion. But see, what makes Christianity different is you have Christ, you have the Bible, uh, you have God. Um, you have a relationship available, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You have these things in Christianity that no other religion has. That doesn't mean it's a true religion. In order to be a true religion, you have to have truth that measures up to an apostolic standard, uh, basically to pass a heresy test. And um, I'm not sure what has happened to people in their thinking, but um, I'm not aware of any Christian group or denomination in the history of Christianity, uh, this will sound like a <laughs> very grandiose statement that measures up to an apostolic standard. 
Doesn't that sound crazy? Say it again. Say that. I, I don't know of any Christian group in the history of Christianity. I, this would be beyond. Measure up to apostolic standard. No. I've challenged all the way back to the evidence of some group. They always fall short. Basically, what this comes down to, Dan, is um, the church doesn't understand how to determine what is an essential truth. Essential truth is actually pretty simple. It's actually something that's outlined in Scripture. Uh, one of the greatest errors that they have is they're always confusing uh, church heresy with biblical heresy or essential biblical truths and things that are defined as essential in a church council. Those are two different things. See, you can't just determine an essential uh, unless it's based on the Bible. I mean, it, anybody would, would go along with this. But nevertheless, you will see Christians say like um, things like, um, well, you have to believe in the second coming. Christ. Well, you're not a Christian. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's no explicit statement that says that. Right. As much as a person might believe that, Let's take, take an example so we can always see this very clearly. Well, this involves a couple of subjects, and we've talked about these things before. <clears throat> but uh, there's an amazing amount of Christians out there that say that if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're, you're not a Christian. Okay? So we'll set that aside, but let's look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, you're going to have to believe certain things about the Holy Spirit in order to be a Trinitarian. One of them would be you'd have to believe that the the Holy Spirit is a coexistent being alongside the Father and the Son. And uh, we're all familiar with that doctrine, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But not only does it not explicitly or in any shape or form say anything that you must believe that the Holy Spirit is a person in the Bible, correct me if I'm wrong, not only does it not do that, it also doesn't say anything about the Trinity. A thinking Trinitarian will acknowledge that. He says, no, you, you can get saved without having knowledge of the Trinity. And it also doesn't say that you have to believe in the Trinity. Now, scholars will say, because they're very careful, they use guarded language, that um, the doctrine of the Trinity is not explicitly taught anywhere in the Bible. This is what they say, all of them. And the reason is because they're very aware of that. That means that no <laughs> you can't go to this proof text or that proof text. See, right, this proof text here proves the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, standing alone. There is no, mm-hmm. they know that. Well, there's definitely nothing in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? Okay, so let's go beyond all that and focus on one thing. <clears throat> Where is the statement in Scripture that says you must believe anything about the Holy Spirit? Let's take an example. Can you use Scripture to prove that if you don't believe the Holy Spirit exists, now this will kind of sound absurd, then you're a heretic. Now, you could make the case that you must believe that the Holy Spirit exists because the Holy Spirit is mentioned over and over in the Bible. You just can't prove it. In other words, you could um, use the Scripture against the person and say, you know, if you don't believe the Holy Spirit exists, you're basically a spiritual dunce. But nevertheless, there's no explicit statement found in the Bible anywhere that says you must believe in the existence of the Holy Spirit. So it's an unprovable theory. 
So what I'm trying to do is illustrate that um, if you're going to come out and say, well, well, you know, what's your your belief system based upon? They'll always say the same thing: the Bible. And what they always say? Mm-hmm. Okay, then there has to be specific information in the Bible that supports your belief system. Is that holding up so far? Mm-hmm. Actually, it hasn't held up at any point along the line with everything I've No, I'm saying, Isn't that funny? No, I'm saying the qualifications, what you're saying, is, how, is what... None of this stuff is holding up. Right. Nothing. So as we go on, we, we go back to what I was mentioning earlier on the phone. There's something wrong with a Christian brain. They're not thinking straight. Mm-hmm. Why don't you have people talking about this? They don't hear people talking about it. They're just assuming things that are true and, and believing what they're told without any critical thinking. You know? Mm-hmm. So that's what we do on here, is we try to get people to think, and we actually deprogram people. Because <laughs> we think everybody is programmed. Oh, yeah. yeah so. I mean, you're, you're thinking along those lines. So. However, however many years you've been alive, you've been being consistently programmed. Yeah, but the problem is you got a lot of um, soft conspiracies in Christianity on the Internet. Uh-huh. And uh, they look outside the church and talk about programming. But when it comes to programming inside within the church, they're not even thinking about that stuff yet. All right. Got that far. Because um, they just don't understand the information. <coughs> Right, it couldn't possibly that be that it's worse inside than outside. You know, we're talking about infiltration in, in the distant past. No, what I'm saying is you just mentioned that the people in the church, they talk about infiltration outside, but they don't stop to think about the infiltration within the church. And they definitely ain't thinking that it's worse inside than it is in the outside. Well, this will sound funny when I say it, but one of the biggest problems in Christianity, in my estimation, is is defending Christianity, you know, because we're supposed to do that according to the scriptures. You know, defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Mm-hmm. That actually has to do with specific information, essential information. You know, the Bible talks about the truth or the faith with the definite article. It's talking about the essentials. But whether we realize it or not, we end up defending institutional Christianity and, uh, we need to stop doing that so much and turn inward and start critiquing ourselves more. Because that's what Israel used to do. They used to measure themselves against the pagan nations and basically slap themselves on the back and go, well, we're doing pretty good. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Everybody has a tendency to do that as humans. You know, you sit in a pew, you compare yourself with the guy on the left and the guy on the right. And you go, well, you know, I'm doing okay here. Now, the pastors do the same thing. They go to these big conferences and, you know, they, they kind of feel out the other pastors and to kind of get a feel for, you know, how am I doing, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, in our society, people measure themselves against others. It's just a natural thing, you know. And, uh, well, you know, that's the problem in denomination. See, denominations believe that they have the, the stamp of God's approval. You know what I mean? And they think that their denomination is better than other denominations. You know why they think that? Because they're there. 
and they believe that God put them there. So God wouldn't put them in the second best denomination. He'd put them in the very best one. Like <laughs> most Christians are so delusional. They believe that God led them to the church that they're in. They they want to believe that, now, whether it's true or false. Okay, uh-huh. I'm, not that, I'm not saying he didn't. Uh-huh. Because they believe that, they also believe that they are in the be- very best church in town. And the reason they believe that is because they believe that God led them to that church. Now, God wouldn't lead them to the second best church in town. And the reason God wouldn't do that is because, well, he He loves me so much. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Most Christians believe that. What I just went through there. Whether they realize it or not. They think they have favor with God. That's why most Christians don't fear hell anymore. Century after century, people used to have a natural fear of going to hell. Did you know that most modern Christians don't have a fear of hell anymore? They just assume that they're going to heaven. Everything about that? Hmm. Did you know that the farther that you get away from God, the less you worry about hell? Does that make sense to you? Think about that. Would you um, <clears throat> be uh, more concerned about the judgment of God if you were closer to God? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I mean, Moses was close to God. And look at how he feared God. What I'm trying to say is that when you get far away from God, you fear God. You fear God more or less. You fear him less. You know what I mean? Right, right. Now, it's a little bit complex because the Bible talks about security. And it talks about assurance, which is kind of complex. Because there's different types of assurance. You can actually have a revelation of your own assurance that you will persevere unto the end. And the reason we know that is because there's another a number of examples of this in the Bible. You know, Paul had this. David had this. Abraham had this. And a lot of these individuals, this is a special gift from God, and the reason they had it is because they suffered so much. It's almost like compensation, you know. And we don't talk about that kind of assurance today. That's what's called absolute assurance, but it's still subjective. Apart from that individual, because revelation always is. You know, the angel didn't appear to me, you know, I mean, this is your opinion, you know, I don't know. That's your truth, you know. But the assurance that Paul talks about is, it's kind of a subjective assurance that has to do, it's experiential, and it has to do with performance of good works. That's what he talks about in these different passages. Um, and you can see that there's people out there that are doing good works, you know, like Mormons, you know, quote-unquote good works, to actually save themselves. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's really mm-hmm. a matter of the heart. I mean, who are you to judge? If you go to have a pretty good handle on people, because most people are pretty simple, if you're around them and you know them fairly well, you can see pretty well what a person's motives are, at least over time. You know, a lot of churches, um, they have two or three people in there that are very, very busy. They're, they're, they're doing it all, you know what I mean? They're always there. And uh, if, you, if you get to know these people, 
you'll find out that um, the reason they're that way is because from their childhood. You know what I mean? They had performance-based parents, and they're still carrying that into their adult life, and they have a performance-based attitude towards God. I always have to be doing something so I can have God's favor. And those people in Christian churches have a works-based mentality, you know, because that's their strength, and most people will focus on their strength and not on their weakness. But it is based uh, upon the performance of good works. I'm talking about having assurance, because you do want to have assurance of your salvation. But anyway, in the big picture, what I was saying is that Christians are not really that concerned, like they have been in the past, about their status before God. You know what I mean? It's not something they think about a whole lot. You know what I mean? I'm not Mm -hmm. really worrying about it. You shouldn't be worrying about that kind of thing. If you're worried about it, then do something about it. You know what I mean? But just where it says, uh, it's reading the other day, it says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, like a consistent examining. That's the Second Corinthians. And some translations uh, read that. um, It reads, uh, to see if you're reprobate. Right, exactly. Then in the older traditional translations, you have the opposite term, reprobate, which means rejected. You mm-hmm. know? And uh, what that's talking about is actually, um, it's like a self-examination uh, to see if you're basically a heretic. Because you can measure yourself against Scripture, you know, your beliefs. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is just because it says the faith. When it, I was going to say, it sort of goes hand in hand with the other verse that you were saying about um, protecting the faith. Yeah. you got to know what that faith is and then continually examine yourself to see if you're sticking to it. Yeah. Now, like I said before, you know, the truth and the faith with a definite article, it's a body of information, the essentials. So mm-hmm. if you look at that verse and you don't, if you don't know that, you would think it's talking about, you know, folks see more on good works or something like that, but it's actually talking about a body of information. You know, do you line up with this? Because in Galatians chapter 6, it has a list of uh, soul-damning sins, and one of those sins is heresis, you know, the word heresy. Mm-hmm. It kind of wandered away from the uh, biblical teaching that uh, heresy is a... Uh, it's a uh, soul damnable sin. It's a moral fault. That's why it's in the list of uh, soul damning sins there. And uh, it's something that, um, you know, you can fall into it, but you have to repent. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't see Christians concerned about that in local churches. I mean, I could say a lot about this. Just let me illustrate one thing. <clears throat> if you're a pastor means you're a shepherd, okay? If you're a shepherd, you have to keep watch over the flock. You're responsible for their belief system. Isn't that, isn't that correct? Mm-hmm. Because you're not being responsible for your flock. You're responsible for mm-hmm. your flock, you're responsible for their beliefs. Why is that true? Because you're a teacher. Okay, so if you're responsible for their beliefs, then you would have to know what they believe. 
in order to be responsible. I can be responsible for what they believe if you don't know what they believe. So if you're going to be responsible, that means you're going to have to ask them specific questions about what they believe. Well, guess what? We don't do that in politically correct churches today because we're politically correct. We don't get in people's business. Mm-hmm. We don't do that because it's too much work. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to travel to someone's home, <laughs> sit down and look, have a face-to-face conversation and actually ask them what they believe. The truth is, pastors don't actually know what people believe. Now, if you take this and you amplify it, and you take a quick look at the uh, mega church church system, mm-hmm. virtually impossible to do this kind of thing. And the opposite of that, of course, is a small house church setting, which is the biblical model in the uh, apostolic scriptures. After they, um, when Jesus said there will be a come a time when they will cast you out of the synagogue, right? Mm-hmm. Because originally they were meeting in synagogues. So eventually they moved into a house church setting, and this would be normally people that had you know some degree of wealth because it had to be a larger home. It didn't necessarily have to be. And um, that's why this kind of thing went on. But you're you're basically in, in a face-to-face situation there. And we have these things in churches today. They're called, like, they have different names, you know, like cell groups and stuff like that. But that's mm-hmm. where real Christianity is practiced. I mean, you've been in that kind of setting, you know. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, it's hard to be phony. Um, it's easy to practice real Christianity that has to do with getting to know people on a significant level. Because a lot of people in churches today are professional sinners, and they're actually good actors. And it gets harder to pull that off um, when you're in a small setting. Well, Connie, are you there? Connie goes to sleep (laughs) on the phone if I talk too much. I'm talking about when her and I are talking. (laughs) She doesn't. (laughs) It's because of the three-hour time difference. Uh But she will check out very quickly um, if I start off talking too much. She's still there, so she might be in the. Oh, she says "Uh, I'm going to go. It's late here. Blessings, Dan. Uh Okay, over her time, it's uh, almost one o'clock. So. Yeah, mine is about 8 till midnight, so it's probably going to start going fireworks crazy here. So if it doesn't, it's going to mute. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I should have let her talk at the beginning because that's, that's what we've done in the past. Is mm-hmm. She starts at the, at the beginning and I take over along the way, which which is, you know, because we've got the, that time difference. That's, that's a pretty good plan. But uh, she sounded like she was being kind of passive. Usually I'm the guy in the background. You can hear on the podcast. Of course, we splice a lot of audio, so sometimes people don't hear that part where I'm just kind of lingering in the background. So do you guys go through and edit most of the podcasts that you do? Um, we try to, to uh, do podcasts where we don't have to edit them, but it's really hard. 
And uh, we're doing fine so far. I did not expect to talk about any of these things. I thought we would talk about, I thought this podcast would go down in flames like really quick. <laughs> Either you can't put it up at all or you're going to have to be highly edited. Uh-huh. But, um, I see somebody's messaging me here. So I need to answer, uh, answer that question that you had there on uh, Facebook. Uh-huh. I'm doing this off the top of my head. But what we do is we talk about how to think straight. Okay? And when we talk about how to think straight, um, it's actually a particular worldview. And I have a name for that. <laughs> called the deep conspiracy view. And that's because I believe that evidence is overwhelming that we live in a system of control that is much more advanced than, I would have to say, the great majority of, cons- we'll call them conspiracy, conspiracy theorists believe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of enticing beliefs out there that are kind of out of the norm. Let's take an example, okay? Uh, If you're an Irishman, you can get all involved about the legendary journey of Jeremiah. By the way, I used to believe all that stuff too, okay? And that... uh, This is what? That he went to the Druids? He went to uh, Ireland um, with uh, T. Teffy, the daughter of uh, Zedekiah, who was the last... Mm -hmm. King... Uh, king of Judah, and he went to Babylon and had his eyes plucked out, but his daughter escaped with Jeremiah uh, to Egypt. And, and up to that point, this is actually all in the Bible. It doesn't say her name. Right. Tradition says her name was T. Tephi. And um, there are traditions out there that um, that the Scots actually come from T. Tephi. Others say the Irish, and others say both. Because there's a relationship between the Irish and the Scots. Although some will even debate that. <laughs> some Scots will say, I don't want to do those drunken Irish. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I, I'd actually, see, I don't have a problem with um, Jeremiah getting on a boat and coming to Ireland. It's entirely feasible. Because I actually believe that the ancient world was more advanced than we're being told. Now, I'm not talking about stuff like Atlantis. Okay, for us, take an example. Let's say, like with the Americas. With the Americas, I actually believe what's something you don't hear very often. I believe there was constant communication between what we call the Old World and the Far East and the Americas, simply because they could. You know what I mean? Now, I'm coming from a revisionist view, where I actually believe that Solomon had a uh, a pretty massive empire. And both he and David had um, <clears throat> significant, uh, you know, fleets, to say the least. You know what I mean? Now, you've probably heard uh, that there's evidence out there that the, the Phoenicians and the Israelites were in the Americas, and there's supposedly, you know, there's evidence of this kind of thing. Uh-huh. Oh, I heard this, right? Or maybe you haven't. I don't know. I've heard of like Hebrew markings and uh, like hieroglyphs and stuff being found. Heard of a couple of different things. Mm-hmm. 
is we talk about tier two propaganda. When you get something that is, if you're not going to believe what you're told about American history, then they will have a fake story waiting just for you. And most people will believe that because this is alternative. Okay? Right. They don't believe that the Illuminati is motivated enough or sophisticated enough or equipped enough to create a significant amount of fakery to fool people uh, and trick them, hoodwink them, uh, that actually push through the initial veil. Okay? Now stop and think about it. Do you think the Illuminati is... is, Do you think they would want to create propaganda for people who don't believe what they're told? Of course. Of course. That means there's two tier two propaganda. So now what we do, we we select any category, (laughs) and today we're talking about archaeology. Okay, so where is the fake archaeology created by Illuminati to fool people who thinking that they found some significant alternative truth? That's a good question. You know why? Because there's very few people looking for it. Because they haven't even gone that far. They think that anything outside the norm... So here's the thing, is that all archaeological digs are controlled. And nobody's going to prove that wrong. Okay? Now, what we're talking about is things that are anomalies. They're not necessarily found in uh, archaeological digs that are controlled. You know, that that's the whole point there, you know. But um, <clears throat> I believe that they manufacture fakes. Now, how do we know they manufacture fakes? Well, this is not hard to figure out. There was an entire industry in the post-apostolic church they had to do with Christian relics. That's right, yeah, question. yeah. Is there any authority... Splinters of the cross and... <laughs> Is there any authority that we can appeal to that can effectively prove that at least one of those relics was genuine? You can't prove any of these things. Right. Now, what's the most probable... Now, see, it, see, it changes when you believe in Illuminati. Things change. So we believe the Illuminati exists. So um, we can be certain that some of that stuff was fake. See? We're just learning how to think straight here. So now we've determined that some of it is fake. So now it's a question of, uh, gee, how much of it is fake? Well, this is the problem. We don't know. See, how would you determine the genuine and the fake? Um, if you were going to begin to do that, you would have to have some workable knowledge of what they can do and what they can't do. So ask yourself this question. Is there any man on God's green earth that can infallibly determine what the Illuminati can't do? You know, in other words, this person knows he's able to measure their resources and their motivation. Can you think of who this person might be? Nope. There's nobody. Okay? What we talk about on here a lot is the lowliness of man and our ignorance. See, man thinks that he can do a lot of things and know a lot of things. He can't do these things at all. He just thinks he can. The reason we believe these things is because we've been psyoped by guess who? Well, the same old people. 
Sometimes they tell us, well, you can't know anything for sure. There's no certainty. Um, They will tell you that, well, you have your truth and she has her truth, but it's all subjective. It's kind of new age type thing, you know what I mean? In the medieval uh, church, they were obviously pushing this, um, the opposite view of absolute certainty. You know, when the when the when the Pope sits on uh, <clears throat> the throne of Saint Peter, the chair of Saint Peter, and speaks in ex cathedra, he's infallibly inspired. Right. In order to believe that, you have to believe in absolute certainty. And what they've done is they've psyoped the Christian Church. This has to do with the subject of epistemology, which we've been talking about a lot lately. Chris McCombs did two podcasts on that, which I uploaded into our group. <clears throat> He's talking a lot about what's called presuppositionalism. See, most people are reasoning in a circle, but they don't—they don't realize that. Um, on last night's podcast, I made a uh, profound statement, whether it's true or not, because I'm a professing Christian and I've spent my uh, entire adult life studying the Bible. And what did I say on last night's podcast? I said, you can't prove anything with the Bible. Not one thing. The reason you can't prove anything with the Bible is you can't prove the Bible. That people haven't learned how to think straight. Now, this will sound like shocking, blasphemous, you see. Where did our Bible come from? Did the uh, first century Christians have a Bible? Most Christians don't even get that. Nope. They have a Bible. Nope. Uh, depends whether you believe that the Septuagint was the Bible. But guess what? You can't prove they had a Septuagint either. Now, I believe they had a Septuagint. I the Septuagint is just the Old Testament in Greek? Yeah, it also has uh, the Apocrypha. You know, there's different Apocryphas. Uh-huh. Okay. Because they took that out later, you know, obviously. But even in right. the, uh, 1611 King James, they had the Apocrypha. Right. Another psyop, by the way. Anyway, <clears throat> okay. So uh, I mean, we, there's a lot of different. We're just covering ground that we've talked about before on this podcast. Everything I've said, I've talked about before. So <clears throat> it's just um, bringing different things together in one particular podcast. Um, anyway, I mean, um, <clears throat> how can you prove anything in the Bible? Because um, what I'm saying is that um, you know. See, I don't believe that you can believe, prove that Jesus was a historical figure. Uh, do I believe Jesus was a historical figure? Yeah. Do I believe the Bible? Yeah. Can you prove it? Okay. you you got to stay here and go through all the stuff we've talked about before. See, we're not even thinking at all. When we talk, we just repeat things in our culture over and over again without critically thinking. So when we use the word proof, whether we realize it or not, we're talking about infallible proof. You see that? So is there any authority that can infallibly prove? Select any scripture. And show me the authority that can infallibly prove that that scripture was not altered. It can be one single word. Uh, for a diabolical purpose, let's say 11 centuries ago. Now this is amazing. Because our modern Bibles are based on the Masoretic text. 
Remember we talked about that earlier today? Right. And they tell Some us in the 8th, ninth century. Okay? Now, there's all kinds of um, contradictions between the Masoretic text. Some people will really play this down. Okay? But there's there's just... The, the, the numbers alone differ quite markably between... Um, the Septuagint, and the Masoretic text. So, I mean, Protestant Christians will just, I mean, first of all, they don't even talk about the, uh, the Septuagint, just like um, they focus on the Roman Catholic Church, and they tend to ignore the Eastern Orthodox Church, you know? Uh-huh. The reason I say that is because um, in the Eastern Church, it's the exact opposite. They actually believe that the Septuagint version was inspired. Now, that's where you get the the LXX, you know, the 70, because they actually believe there were 70 translators. Mm-hmm. You can't prove that, because you can't prove these things that far back in history. So you're trusting somebody. So ask yourself, who am I trusting? <laughs> who am I trusting today to tell me the truth about ancient history? Whether you right. realize it or not, you're trusting the medieval Catholic Church. Show me something about ancient history that was not filtered to the medieval system of control. Now, we're talking about a geographical area here, you know. Obviously, I'm not talking about Indonesia. Indonesia existed in the Middle Ages. I mean, that land did, you know what I mean? It wasn't called Indonesia. Right. So, we're very Western-centric. You know, we ignore the uh, Parthian Empire, which was contemporaneous with the Roman Empire. And even Orthodox historians will tell us that Parthia was so powerful it actually defeated Rome. But when you go to school, you don't hear anything about Parthia. You know why? <clears throat> because what you hear about... Parthia is where? That's like Persia? Parthia was the old Persian Empire of Alexander the Great, basically. Well, it was actually uh-huh. smaller. But that general area, yeah. But, um... You know, why is this so? Because, see, history is actually propaganda. And the reason it's propaganda is because we live in a system of control. The same people that are ruling now ruled back then, and they didn't have to tell us the truth. They didn't have to tell us the truth. So that's why they didn't. Does that make sense? Yep. Do they have to tell you about um, William the Orange? Uh, in the 12th century or 11th century? No. They can manufacture William of Orange out of thin air. He doesn't have to be a historical figure. Can you prove that's right or prove it wrong? No. Nope. need a time machine. Because you're trusting somebody for even the most foundational information about anything that relates to any of this stuff. And they controlled everything because there's no middle class. You see that? Yeah. Now, well, the most important thing to notice about all this is to realize that you don't hear people talking about this. Recognize that? Mm-hmm. See that? That's self-evident, isn't it? Now, if what I'm saying is true, and these things should be true because they're supposed to be self-evident, then that's telling us that these people haven't learned how to think straight. It's also telling us that we live in a cultic system 
Because I'll tell you flat out right now that scholars absolutely do not think this way. Let's take an example. Do scholars ever consider the possibility that there could be a conspiracy involved with the Masoretes who supposedly created the Masorite text? You ask yourself this question, can anybody infallibly prove that the Masorites actually existed? No. Now we're going a step deeper. <laughs> Don't even have enough information. It gets even worse, Dan. Can anybody infallibly prove that the Middle Ages existed? Because I don't believe That's it. That's something Connie brought up the other day when we were talking. I was like, what? And she was talking about the changing of time and all this stuff and a huge uh, chunk of missing time. I was like, what? I never heard that one. Well, what you do is you start with the, the early, they call them the uh, the early Middle Ages, and then you, tr you try to, um, you go through the process of trying to prove that. And what you'll do, you know, if you have a revisionist, um, skeptical mind, you're realizing that once again, I'm trusting somebody. So it really comes down to whether they want to tell me the truth or not, because if they don't want to tell me the truth, there is no way that I can possibly know this. You see, you have to rely on somebody. Well, if we're actually living in a system of control that was intact back then, then um, you've got to make some kind of an argument for why they would tell you the truth. See, this is what happens when you get a conspiratorial mindset. Right. Why would yeah? they start? See, most of the conspiracy theorists out there, they're, they're so far behind, they, they're not even close to learning how to think straight. Now, let's, let's, you know, let's put some balance to this okay, thing, okay? <clears throat> and we could say a lot of things about the Bible. I just drifted off of that. We could go back to the Bible. But, um, you see, there used to be security and protection. There used to be a God-ordained theocracy, which progressively devolved in stages, because God judged it progressively, right? But in that system, you know, of Israel and the later Judah, um, you had established priesthoods and scribes, a temple system. You had ge genealogies that were protected in the temple, as far as we know, because you're even trusting somebody to tell you that. Because I don't see, I don't trust Josephus, and I don't even believe he's a historical figure, and no one can prove that he that he was. We just believe these things. Right. You need to realize at least one thing: you can't you can't prove it. So if you want to trust it, go ahead. You're not going to be able to prove anything. Because what do we mean? Yeah, when we just be honest with yourself and invest in your trust into some story over another. Yeah. Now the good news is. Remember that verse I gave you earlier? These things are going to be restored. And I'm saying in the big picture, the reason we've lost all this is because God took it away. It's a punishment. That's given some context to it, okay? It's just that people don't realize what they've lost because you know why? The controllers don't want you to know that. They want, they want to make it simple because in order for propaganda to be effective, it has to be simple. Just give us simple story, that's the easiest thing to believe, and go back to the blinking screen, you know, and you'll be and be satisfied with what we tell you is truth, you know. <clears throat> so, um, you know, you can take an example like um, you'll hear this repetition over and over about 70 A.D. 
and all the stuff that happened in 70 AD. There's nobody that can prove anything happened in 70 AD. Um, I can nearly prove, I have to prove that the Illuminati existed in the first century, and I can use mathematics to do that. That's the most provable science. They've left their signature behind, even that far back. But uh, if you can get to that point, <clears throat> then 70 AD would be the least likely date for these things to happen. Because they would never come out and actually give you the right date. You see? see that, Dan? Yeah, you're saying if it did happen in 70 AD, they wouldn't give you that. They would say it was in a different yeah, year? Yeah, it would be 73 AD or 69 AD or, you know what I mean? Let me look at my phone here just a second. Uh -huh. Somebody's calling here, but I don't know who it is. I'm just going to ignore it. And why, why would they give you the straight-up truth? They don't have to. That far back in history. Mm -hmm. So that what that means is that you can assume that these things did not happen in, say, 70 A.D. Now, they could have been in another year. We don't know what year, but they didn't happen in 70 A.D. Because these are Satanists. There's that work. They're black magicians. They wield the power of illusion. They have a different ethic. Good is evil. Evil is good. Everything is reversed. Telling the truth is a sin. The only time you tell the truth is to get them to swallow a lie. So you have to think from their mindset. So now we go back to 70 A.D., <clears throat> Why would they tell us the truth about anything in 70 AD when they don't have to? And it's also against their ethical belief system. So they're not going to. So that means that all the things that were told about 70 AD, none of them happened. Because they like to mock our ignorance and stupidity. Hmm. They're big satanic egos. This is how you learn how to think straight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny <laughs> you get to see because um, we're really looking into the human psyche and examining how far gone people are I mean they're not even close to grasping basic concepts of reality like I've been saying uh, earlier there's all kinds of profound secrets about soil air water the most basic substances all around us and they don't understand any of these things they're not going to either. Um, so anyway, I mean, you can ask me some questions about the Bible, but um, well, there's a lot of things we could say. I mean, I could spend a whole podcast, you know, just starting right now off the top of my head. Uh, people say that, you know, if we had the original manuscripts, you know, we could prove this or that. Well, if you had the original manuscripts sitting in your lap, how could you prove that they were original manuscripts? Ask right. a question. Is there any human authority that can infallibly prove that the Bible was not created by an advanced subterranean race to fool simple-minded surface dwellers? Who is the authority that can infallibly prove that? And more importantly, how is he going to do that? What methodology is he going to use to prove that? Can't, you can't do that. You know why? One simple reason. Not enough information. Why do I believe the Bible? Because Christianity is a, uh, a book-centered religion. 
And we all know that's actually 66 books, okay? But it's a, it's a religion that's based around a physical text, and I actually believe that's a psyop, okay? This sounds totally wrong, because isn't Christianity supposed to be a Bible-centered religion? Well, yes and no. Everything is about balance. Everything. But see, <clears throat> what Christianity is really supposed to be about is based on a relationship. And you'll have Christians out there who will say, Christianity, how many times have you heard this? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, right? Right, right, right. I just said that yourself. Did you know that's not true? Come on, Dave, you've got to be wrong about something here, so you're overdue. <laughs> I think I'm wrong about that. Well, I think you're really talking about practices. I mean, it's put in... Well, they got to be right about something. Because they haven't been right about anything so far. You notice that? Everything's wrong. <laughs> this is one true religion. So let's see if they can get this right. Uh, no, because at least two places in the Apostolic Scriptures, Paul actually uses the word religion. Now, that's an English word, and it's actually... You know, I don't want to say it's a mistranslation, but it's a very poor translation. It's a word that we acknowledge. But, you know, it's actually translated that way in English text. I mean, actually, traditionally. When Paul talks about true religion, it has to do with, you know, visiting widows and helping the poor and stuff like that. It's right in the Bible. It shows they don't know the Bible. Now, this is something that people hear, and they repeat, and they pass it on without any critical thinking. So it's not either or. You know, it's either a relationship or a religion. It's both, you see. But the primary thing is that Christianity has to do with a relationship with the Creator, not a book, you see. Because there's no human authority that can infallibly prove that book. How are you going to do it? Now, there is a way to bypass all this. Revelation. But the church has been psyoped into rejecting extra-biblical revelation. That's what we talked about earlier. Now, I'm, I'm saying that's a psyop. Now, that's an opinion. I can't readily prove that. <clears throat> okay? But basically, uh, what you would do to illustrate this is ask yourself a basic question. Do you think that the Illuminati likes uh, extra-biblical revelation that comes from God? Now, when I say that, ask that question, I'm assuming that there actually is some genuine extra-biblical revelation somewhere. Do you think mm. that they would like that? Nope. No. Do you think they would try to convince Christians that there's no such thing? Yep. Absolutely. Now, what we do know, like we said earlier today, is there's a tremendous amount of confusion out there. There's demonic, false charismata. False prophecies, it runs the gamut. And I'm actually saying that most of it is false. So because of that, uh, should we uh, broad brush it and just say it's all a bunch of demonic garbage like um, some Southern Baptists do? Or should we try to discern between wheat and chaff and extract the truth out of it? Let me tell you, you know, if you look at these um, these prophecies online, I mean, you're supposed to develop discernment skills over the years. I have a heck of a time trying to figure out what is a genuine prophecy from God. Because some of the false ones are, like, really obvious. You know what I mean? 
I mean, if you're 100% convinced that there's no pre-trib rapture, I mean, it's your own personal truth, you know what I mean? But, I mean, it, and, and it is, if it's false, you know what I mean, you got to go with something. Then if they have some kind of prophecy about a pre-trib rapture, you're going to go, that's false prophecy. God's not speaking that, because there's no such thing as a pre-trib rapture, you know what I mean? Right. Because you're measured against the Bible, but it's, it's always based on your understanding. But everything is this way. See, this is the frailty of man. We're, we're not infallible. We're, we're actually pretty stupid, and we've got we've gotten stupider. That's what I was saying earlier that God has made us all stupid. It's a corporate judgment. It's actually in the Bible. And you can look up Isaiah 29. I've read it on this show at least twice. I don't want to do it again. That's probably the best chapter in the Bible where it talks about God making His own people stupid. <clears throat> He's clearly taking away spiritual truth. That's going to affect your intellect. It's not going to bypass it. You know. And actually, um, when you have a corporate judgment, sometimes it can be all-encompassing. But this is not easy to figure out. The way that you show this is you look around at reality. This is one of the best ways to prove that we're actually in a cult, the cult of society. And what you see everywhere is omnipresent devolution. Instead of focusing on how everything is deteriorating, try to find something in the created order that's improving. I'd sure like to know what it is. There's nothing. Okay? Now, the Bible teaches that God has his hands in everything, that he orders all things. This has to do with the providential aspect of God, his providence. For instance, in Hebrews 1.3, it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. So if there is an etheric structure behind the molecular structure, God is upholding that too, or we all collapse into ourselves. It would be nothing. Okay? So we have this <clears throat> reality that's everywhere present of devolution. And now you fit God in. Now, devolution has to do with the very aspects various aspects of human beings, you know, their mind, their spirit, their soul, their body, their emotional element, etc. Everything is devolving. Now insert God. Now we can figure out whether God is making mankind smarter. I'm talking about Christians. Because Christians don't escape this. Is God making us, because nothing is ever staying the same. There's no evidence that anything is in a static state. Everything is changing. And there's a lot I could say about that because it actually has to do with the, the cyclical nature of creation. Everything is actually cyclical. Okay? Mm -hmm. so God is involved, and nothing's getting better. This has to do with the human mind. But I'm trying to say it's God's will for the man of mind, his intellect, to devolve. Now, we've been propagandized to not believe this. We've been propagandized to believe we're getting smarter and smarter. We've been propagandized to believe in evolution. Now, evolution is the exact opposite of devolution. So once you start to acknowledge reality all around you, then you will know that people are delusional. Anyone <laughs> who believes in evolution, there's no evidence for it anywhere. Nothing. It's completely manufactured. See, I'm not even talking about you know the whole scientific thing. I'm talking about things around you evolving. There's nothing evolving. Not yet. There's going to be an upswing because if there isn't, 
everything will implode. Because you can't mm-hmm. keep devolving and spiraling down forever. That's basic common sense. So eventually there has to be an upswing or everything will be destroyed outside of God. So God has to act. But he hasn't done it yet. So God is involved with the human the Christian mind devolving. Now there's a lot of reasons why it's devolving. See, things are complex. We actually live in an energetic environment and most of our environment has negative energy. It's electromagnetic. Most people's home, there's no significant, you know, it's called right spin energy because all energy moves from point A to point B like a vortex in a spiral fashion. Mm-hmm. There's no significant um, beneficial energy in their entire home. Everything is toxic. It's been planned that way for a diabolical purpose. And it's primarily directed at Christians. Why is that true? Christians are the enemy. Your home is full of poison. They've created homes that are hermetically sealed. When you sleep at night, you sleep on bed springs that have absolutely been proven to be an antenna uh, that basically functions for mind control. I mean, when you say mind control, I mean the average citizen is programmed to have a laugh response. They're on mind control to react robotically towards the subject of mind control. You know, it's like someone pushes their button. If someone says mind control, then you do this. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> That's a person on mind control. <laughs> That'd point that out. But yeah, um, if you have knowledge, you can see that everything in your home is wrong. And what we've been talking about in our society is stop trying to find things that are wrong. Stop doing that, okay? Or take the focus off of that, because it has benefits, obviously. But let's bypass that, and let's try to find something that's done the right way. Because I'm saying there's nothing anywhere. So that's a, an ongoing challenge that somebody can email me, and it has, there's a qualifier, and it has to be something significant. I'm talking about some little tiny thing. Of course, now the word significant is going to be subjective. So one person's significant will be different than another person's significant. But anyway, if you think there's anything in our society that is done the right way, because when I, what do I mean by that? I'm talking about everything is designed to be done the wrong way. It's inefficient, you know what I mean, on purpose. Mm-hmm. For a lot of different reasons. One of the more obscure reasons is actually to frustrate you on an emotional level. There's a psyop going on when you drive to work. Do you think that the government is not intelligent enough to make that traffic move faster? Do you know that conspiracy theorists have actually proven that there is um, a diabolical conspiracy involved with um, the timing of streetlights, which varies from city to city. I can imagine that. If you live in a high um, income uh, area, the streetlights will be more favorable. If you're less in, um, in a different area, they will be there to waste your time and frustrate you. 
Hmm. In fact, there's there's frustration that's built into the entire system. Everything's done the wrong way. This is not hard to figure out because if you start thinking about how to improve things, you can very quickly come up with better ideas. Let's take an example. Let's collapse our whole reality, which is fear-based, like you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Show you that we live in a system of control. First of all, you can't get anything through the patent office that has to do with alternative fuels or alternative engines. That's a system of control. So is that conspiracy theory? No, that's conspiracy facts, sir. Now, if you go back to the original American cars, they ran on alcohol. Did you know this? Nope. Well, notice that you don't hear people talking about this. This is remember I talked about the stupidity of the human mind. Mm-hmm. That's true. Because they have a psyop going that has to do with petroleum industry, and it overlaps into a lot of things. There are fantastic tales about how we derive petroleum from. Uh, uh, the carcasses of dinosaurs. They actually tell you that uh, when you get a quote-unquote education. You're supposed to believe that or you get a wrong answer. That's a cultic system. Remember today in our previous conversation we talked about um, this cultic system, the educational system. There's no significant difference between that and the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which right. readily acknowledges a cult. You ever get the wrong answer in a church, um, Dan? You know you got well, that was the wrong answer, Dan. Don't say that. <laughs> Keep talking about that. We're going to punish you. It's called asking a pastor a question. <laughs> Did you know that you actually have a cultic system in a local church that is not? Well, here's the thing. Let's step back. In a cultic system, um, it's not designed for asking questions and free inquiry. I'm talking about, you know, you're not trying to cause trouble, you're actually trying to find the truth. You're assuming that this guy has it, so you can ask the question so you can get some truth. That's what they used to do in the ancient world. They used to seek out an authoritative teacher and ask him questions. What's wrong with that? What's well, nothing wrong with that. Okay, that's based on common sense. In church, you're not supposed to ask questions. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't ask any questions. I'm not talking about that. But it's a system that's not designed for that, just like in a college classroom. Hey, you can ask some questions in there. Watch what happens if you keep asking them. Mm-hmm. You'll become a troublemaker. Now, the same thing happens in a local church. You know why? Because um, the pastor is actually programmed by the system. It's called Bible school. To believe that he's an expert. None of this can be proven by the Bible. You know why? Because when you come out of a seminary, you're not old enough, according to a biblical standard, to be an expert on anything. This is true. That's what the concept of an elder is. In all ancient societies, <clears throat> we're based around an elder statesman. Oh, but we don't pay attention to that anymore because we've got a better system. You know what the system's called? The money system. Money is what rules everything. Money is their God. Now, the great majority of Christians are not spiritual people. That's because they practice a religion that is the antithesis of any kind of spirituality. And what is that religion? It's called materialism. 
Mm-hmm. And the way that you can theoretically prove that they practice that religion is pretend that you're an angel and you're gazing over their shoulder during the course of a week after they get their little pablum sermon and shake the pastor's hand, right? And then they're going to go back um, out into the world and now watch what they put their energy and time into hour by hour. You'd be shocked if you were an angel. What do you think is going to happen? Well, you would be shocked to know how little energy and time they put into the kingdom of God during the course of a week. Almost nothing. Um, The things that they think about, the things that they talk about, the things that they worry about, even the things that they pray about, have to do with material things because they're materialist people. They're not spiritually minded. Now, here's a good way to illustrate this. This culture that we live in, this culture, Western culture, which was manufactured to keep Christians down on the farm, because that was that's what it was manufactured for. It's a weaponized culture to keep Christians down on the farm. Okay. Mm-hmm. This culture, if you compare it with any culture from the ancient world, doesn't hold up when it comes to spirituality. Now, I'm not talking about true spirituality or false spirituality. I'm talking about any kind of spirituality. This materialistic culture, which we all are all products of, because everyone is a product of their environment unless they do something radical, very few people do anything radical, okay? Because you're immersed in materiality. The worship of material things, okay? <clears throat> in contrast to all those cultures, I don't care if it was you know, indigenous culture or Greek or Roman culture, in contrast to this culture, <clears throat> those cultures were spiritual. Why is that true? It has to do with the human mind. That's what we're talking about. What are people thinking about? Believe it or not, people back then were very conscious of the spiritual world and how their actions affected uh, different kinds of beings that they believed existed in this spiritual world. This will sound funny when I say this, but most Christians today don't think about how their actions affect God. They just kind of act like he just approves of whatever they do. And if he doesn't, then he'll forgive them anyway and everything will be fine in the by and by. That's their religion. Does that sound like an exaggeration? Some would say so. <laughs> People are delusional from top to bottom. Ask yourself this question. Isn't it true that when you go to a uh, a funeral with a local church pastor, you ever notice how everybody goes to heaven? In that funeral? Mm-hmm. Now, from God's perspective, everything is either true, the truth, or it's a lie. There's no gray areas, right? Remember, we talked in the earlier conversation about with, in the mind of man, there's there's you know there's black, there's white, and there's gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a big middle zone of uncertainty. You know, we're not sure, but God knows the truth. What does God think about that? <clears throat> I know what He thinks. He says that's a lie, but it's an okay lie. 
because there's so many lies in Christianity everywhere all around us that eventually you just kind of settle down and you go, well, you know something? God put me in this church, so therefore it's the best church in town. And he also put me in the best denomination. And you know why? Because I know that God put me in this denomination, so therefore it's the best. Now, there's a close relationship between the ego and materialism. That's what I'm getting at here. So therefore, Dan, we have the stamp of God's approval on all these things. So we can go back to the blinking screen and not have to think anymore. Because you know what? Because thinking is a terrible, terrible thing. You know why? It requires energy and effort. And one of the problems of the fallen human soul the dynamic nature is it's lazy, slothful. Look around and ask yourself this question. Do you think that people like to think? I'm talking about making an effort. The fact is that people have been bioengineered, geoengineered, microengineered, but that by the time they get home from work, they're exhausted, both physically and mentally, unless they're a young person with an um, excess of energy. Okay, hang around for a while. We'll get you sooner or later. Okay, all you want to do is lay down, you know, plop down, and be entertained. You don't have time to ponder your reality, and seek a matter out, and investigate, and do research. Now we know for a fact that the common man, down through the aeons, he's never done research. This is why it's mere child's play to run all these psyops on these people and the sophisticated social engineering. You see, what man needs is for God to intervene. We need God because we can't do it because we're just plain too stupid and naive. But guess what, Dan? If you look around at omnipresent devolution, which is everywhere present and self-evident, you can see that God's not doing it. Now, God's still involved. He's upholding everything. He's behind everything. Uh, we, in him, we live and move and have our being, like it says in Acts 17. But God's still mm-hmm. allowing everything to deteriorate. And Christians are delusional because they want to talk about, well, Christ accomplished all everything on the cross. Ask yourself this question. How many Christians want to acknowledge that we're still suffering under a Genesis 3 curse despite the fact that uh, the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient on the cross? I don't have a problem with that. Um, but we're still under a Genesis 3 curse, supposedly 2,000 years later. Do you ever hear Christians talk about that? Mm-mm. No. And what I keep pounding the table about they don't think they're not thinking. There's evidence right there once again. Right down the line. There's no thinking going on. What is wrong? Now what I'm saying is that see eventually you have to come up with an apologetic. And like I said before, the answer for every question is one word, God. Why this? Why that? Why that? You see, God has control over everything. Now even if God here's where Christians can't think again. Christians say, Well, God didn't will that. God would never do that. Okay. Let's say it's something evil that Christians don't like. and so, well, they want to get God off the hook. 
so to speak. You know, well, well God would never be involved with that because that's evil. Okay, if so, God would never will that. So if God chooses not to act, if He chooses to do nothing, that requires a movement of His will. Now God has a will. It talks about the will in the Bible. So you have a volition of God's will to do nothing. This is basic common sense. Okay. Well, guess what just happened? God willed something when he willed to do nothing. So therefore, it follows by logical necessity that God willed that. He, he willed to not intervene and allow the evil to occur. People have this simplistic uh, mindset. The devil did that. God had, you know, when I'm saying, you know, God had nothing to do with that. All right. So what they don't understand is there's something more profound. Common sense would dictate to you, if you had even understood the most basic, simple concepts of thinking correctly, which has to do with you know philosophy, just basic logic, that because of God's nature, which is holy, <clears throat> um, what he did is that he allowed evil in order to achieve a greater good. See that? Just think that through and see if that's true or not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's obvious that he did that. That was his plan. He's using evil. And all this will come to an end. But our views of God are very simplistic. We have problems reconciling the um, everyday reality of evil with our concept of a holy God. And so we compartmentalize things. It's like a firewall. You say, God's over here. He's got nothing to do with evil. In this podcast before, we've talked about Chris said that, uh, well, Chris, you can't have a demon. Chris can't have a demon. Now, the reason they can't have a demon is because um, <clears throat> their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God can't dwell with evil. You've heard this before. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you believe it right now. Now, if you ask uh, a crowd of a thousand qu- uh, Christians, they, you'll say things like, um, <clears throat> do you believe in the omnipotence of God? You know, that God is all-powerful. They'll say, oh, yes. Now, why do they do that? Because they've heard that word omnipotence before, even though church is pretty dumbed down. Pretty dumbed down. But even a dumbed-down, dumb church, you'll hear words like omnipotence. You know, it's not defined very well. You know, that's Christian talk. Oh, you know, because so if somebody says that, I'm supposed to believe in that. So I will raise my hand. Oh yeah, I believe in omnipotence. If you believe in omnipotence, then you believe in a God who cannot fail. Right. Most Christians believe in a God who can fail, and he's always scrambling to make up plans because man just did this, man just that. So right, because the devil surprised him and threw him for a loop. Yeah, God only has one plan. Okay, now let's go to uh, omnipresence. Basically, what I'm showing is that Christians are clueless about just about everything, and, and nobody's noticing. If you want to know the basic message here, and, and why did we get in this? God. He made everybody stupid. So I have to illustrate it. Because people don't believe this, you see. Now, the evidence for it is everywhere. All you got to do is point the finger, ask a question, you'll see it over and over again. Okay, so now, <clears throat> you got a group of a thousand uh, Christians. 
You ask them the question. Do you believe that God is omnipresent? What do you think they're going to say? Now, they've heard that word before, too, haven't they? Now, they know that they're supposed to say yes, right? Now, what's interesting is you'll have different definitions. In other words, people will say, oh, yes, I believe in that, you know. But they have conflicting opinions on what that term means. So I'm just trying to say that, yeah, they'll nod their head. Oh, yeah, I'll believe in that. I'll stop and think for a moment. These Christians who believe that um, a Christian can't have a demon uh, because the demon is dwelling inside somebody and um, it can't happen in a Christian. See, Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. So when you get saved or you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, you know, you get um, filled with the Spirit because you're a vessel. And the Bible teaches you're a vessel. So the Holy Spirit enters you and fills you. Did you know that that's what most Christians believe? Mm-hmm. Now, if you uh, have a demon, the Holy Spirit can't enter you because it doesn't mingle with evil. Right? That's the argument. Right, 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 right. Now, stop and think about it. <clears throat> you know that the Bible teaches that God is everywhere present? What does omnipresence mean? <laughs> does God travel somewhere? Go to point A to point. No, because he's already there. He has no place to right. go. Right. See, that's what omnipresence is. Now, ask yourself this question. Do Christians understand omnipresence? No. This is called what's called a disconnect. Now, the reason we have the disconnects are right on down the line. It basically has to do with two believing two things that are in opposition to each other. You have your entire adult life to figure this out, but you never do. And the same thing with pastors. You can go right down the line. One illustration after another, they go, my God, it's really this bad? Yes. Now, what it proves is that people are not thinking. And I'm saying one of the reasons they're not thinking, they're too lazy to think. Because you actually have to solve problems. Did you know that when you live in a dense material creation, you are confronted with problems every single day? And that's a, that's a way that you can actually look at life. And I didn't actually look at life that way. And actually, till, um I think about a couple of months ago, I looked at it from that perspective for the first time, and I go, wow, every day I'm confronted with problems. A lot of these problems are on my stupid computer. Do you have a Microsoft computer? You're confronted with problems every day. You're trying to get <laughs> in a freaking order, you know? <laughs> but just, I mean, if, if you're really, like, into, uh, you know, alternative health, you have to have a regimen. Uh, that really goes from hour to hour, even if it just involves drinking, you know, purified water. You got you got to do things all day long. You can't be passive. You can't just go down to uh, a store and buy things off the shelf and heat them up and then swallow them. You got to make intelligent decisions. You got to do things the long, what people call the hard way. Oh, that's the hard way. You got to prepare it a different way. Oh, that's a lot of work, man. Just put it in the microwave, you know. You really think that's better for you, Dave? <laughs> you know. But yeah, you're confronted with problems. Um, this world is full of problems. And most people are in negativity overload, and they don't want to acknowledge how negative their reality is. And so they compartmentalize that truth, and they, shut, they start to shut down, and they're in denial. Now, if you start to say things that might trigger... Uh, 
the overriding truth that we live in a negative reality, then they will start to, um, well, you can actually see them, observe them, what happens. But um, unless they're on a sincere search for truth, which very few people are, uh, they will physically remove themselves from you. You know what I mean? It's called shunning. And it's practiced mm-hmm. in the cultic system. So right. that's one of the many evidences that we live in a cultic system, but we don't know it because when you're in a cult, you're not supposed to know you're in a cult. That's one of the identifiers that you're in a cultic system. Now, people would say, well, they do reason in a circle. No, you go back to things that you can prove. In the earlier conversation, I pointed out how um, when we get our education, all we're doing is just regurgitating what they tell us. It's true. They define reality for us. And we either believe it or we don't. It's based on memorization. And they either punish us or reward us. You know, it's like a, a dog. You know what I mean? I mean, if your dog mm-hmm. doesn't do the right thing, if, if it, you know, stains the carpet, you mean you punish the dog. And if your dog does the right thing, well, you go, ah, oh, that's a good dog. You're rewarding with a little dog bone or something. You know what I mean? That's the way they treat us, you see. <clears throat> they don't encourage creative thinking. Um, they don't encourage discernment. And, uh, I mean, I could make a list of things. You can see, like when you watch television, that you'll never hear the term you know, knowledge is power, something that basic. Because that's a very important term, especially to them. Because if, if you really believe that, then you should restructure your life accordingly and seek after knowledge so you can become wise. And you actually see in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, because people always go to, you know, the love chapter in First Corinthians 13. And they exalt love above all things. In the book of Proverbs, it says that knowledge and wisdom are superior. That these are the things that we should seek above all things, and it compares them with, you know, precious gems and rubies and gold and silver and stuff like that. A good philosopher will tell you that love is dependent upon knowledge. Because in order to love, you have to have an object to love. In order to have an object, you have to have knowledge. You see that? Now, we all know that we don't do philosophy in a local church. They also don't think, teach you how to do um, basic logic. You know what I mean? Otherwise, <clears throat> you wouldn't have all these people with all these contradictive belief systems that they never worked out. And nobody ever notices that there's a problem. That's how you can tell nobody's thinking. Because when you go into a different denominational system, let's let's just step back a little bit. Is this true or is this not true? You can prove it's true through my statistics, okay? Statistical patterns. Is it true or it's not true that when a pastor goes to a denominational Bible school, let's say Southern Baptist, okay, that he's going to come out of that Bible school with a um, a Southern Baptist mindset. Do you think he's going to believe that uh, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a secondary work of grace? No. Because they don't teach that there. Okay? You know, it's not like, you know, well, 17% of them will. 
No. Unless there's some kind of an anomaly, nobody's going to. Now let's go to the Pentecostal seminary. If you come out of the Pentecostal seminary, you're going to believe the exact opposite. Now, it's actually more likely that you could go to a Pentecostal seminary and come out of there not believing that. And that actually happens. You know what I mean? But what I'm trying to point out is you could use this to prove that people are not thinking critically. You see that? Otherwise, there would be significant variation in opinion. But there isn't. They're products of their environment. They believe what they're told. And if you ask these people, do you believe that you're making a sincere search for truth? They will always say the same thing. Yes, because everyone wants to believe that. You see, we just illustrated that can't possibly be true. Because they're all absorbing denominational beliefs without any significant critical thinking. Now, here's where it gets worse. Is it true or is it not true that the great majority of pastors stay with these denominational beliefs their entire pastorate? Is that is that really true? Or do they make significant modifications? No, they don't. They stick with what they were told. That means that they don't know how to critically think and um, <clears throat> they're largely delusional because, guess what, folks? They have significant emotional attachments to these belief systems, which prevent them from critical thinking. And this has to do with the ego. The ego says, well, our belief systems are better than yours, and my denomination is better than yours. Because we have God's stamp of approval. That's what it's all about. We have, or we have a bigger stamp than you do. Because if you had a bigger stamp of approval, then I'd go to your denomination. See, it's all about me and God. You know what it comes down to? One thing. God favors me over you and other people. Now, you know, it sounds like I'm being harsh sometimes. When I say things like delusion or delusional, but ask yourself that question. Isn't that person delusional when they do that? Because, see, it's false. But now ask yourself this question. How many people believe that? Well, I'm illustrating that the great majority of Christians believe these things. The great majority of Christians believe that I go to the very best church in town, and my denomination is the best, and I'm going to heaven, and so is my whole family. You see that? Now, the opposite of that is the awful truth. You could have a heretical denomination. You're going to hell. Your pastor is a a Satanist. He infiltrated the church. Uh, And you go to the worst church in town, but you're so delusional, and the place has got demons in the rafters. But because we dance up and down every Sunday and clap our hands loud and loud enough and long enough, then that makes it all better somehow. But this is not true. 
but people believe it anyway. So, well, Dan, I am going to prophesy, and I prophesy that you fell asleep. Hear ye the word of Dave. So this is a uh, important tradition that we have here. And the last time that we did a podcast, somebody fell asleep as well. <laughs> yeah, that was Johnny. And when Johnny fell asleep, <clears throat> I used a technique called shouting to rouse them. Because sometimes if you shout in the phone, they'll actually wake back up. So let's, let's see if we can do that with Dan. Well, first of all, let me see if he's actually in the chat room. Because he might have got... Oh... Okay, he had to go, so he's not here anymore. All right. And that happens because, like, you know, Dave is on a rant, and he's, like, here for the first time, so he's going, wow, man, I don't want to interrupt this guy. You know, he's just going to keep on going. I never I never talked to anybody like this, you know. So he didn't want to interrupt me. He, he probably thought I'd just keep going deep into the night, <clears throat> which that has actually happened before. If you go to room two... Um, I actually talked for five hours one time on a long rant. You know, I slowed it down a little bit from time to time, but um, uh, we actually ran out of time. Then I opened the room up again, and the, and the total of the two podcasts was like around five hours. But this kind of thing does happen. So anyway, um, I'd wish you a happy new year, but um, you know, when you when you hear this. Um, later on, but, uh, well, you know, a year is a year, so I hope we have a better year. I don't think we're going to. I think this is not going to be a very good year, but I, I wish I could say differently. But uh, anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast, and um, we'll catch you later. All right. Thanks. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.